Hello, welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. A very refreshing change of pace here. We are joined now by Jim Gray, uh, the winner of 12 National Sports Emmy Awards, somebody who has interviewed, I mean, just about everybody you could imagine, from Muhammad Ali to Tom Brady, uh, every U.S. president from Gerald Ford to the guy that's currently at least for the moment, still living uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And Jim is the author of a new book, Talking to Goats, The Moments You Remember and the Stories You Never Heard. Jim, thank you for joining us. Hey, John, thanks so much. It's great to have a front row with you. You're in the front row of a sports show here. <laughs> you know, I got to tell you, this is I think you are the first guest on this podcast that we have booked for reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with either Donald Trump or anything related to Donald Trump in a long time. So this, I, I think this is like a history-making <laughs> podcast. So we're glad to have you. Thank you. I, I, first of all, uh, congratulations on the book. Um, it's, it's doing really well. And, um, and it, I, I think that the timing actually turned out to be brilliant, uh, giving, giving people a chance to dive into something, uh, it, you know, <laughs> something different. So, so Jim, uh, before I get to my first question, uh, a, a full disclosure here, uh, I, I had the great opportunity to hang out with you at, uh, uh, in Atlanta at Super Bowl 53, and I remember being at lunch with you um, on the Saturday before the Super Bowl Sunday, and you got a call, and, and I'm looking, at, and it's Tom Brady. It's Tom Brady, and of course, Tom Brady has written the uh, introduction for your book. I don't know if you gave him advice on the game, but he ended up winning that game, uh, as he tends to do. Um, but, uh, of course, he can't perform without advice from me. How could yeah. he have ever won these Super Bowls? I, I mean, mean really? I mean, I mean, you know, I don't know. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. You thought, it, you, you, thought, you thought it was Belichick. <laughs> exactly. We all thought it was Belichick when it was really Jim Gray. So, yeah, right. but, but, but Jim, let's, let's rewind and go back to, to, to the beginning or, or near the beginning. I mean, you, you, first of all, I mean, you, what, one of your breakthrough moments was Muhammad Ali. Uh, so can you bring us back to what was that like the, the first time you're interviewing Muhammad Ali? Tell us, tell us that story. John, I was 18 years old. Uh, I was a sports intern at KBTV channel nine, the ABC affiliate in Denver, uh, at that time. And they were converting from film to videotape. So my sports internship ended in my, uh, in my freshman year uh, after six months. And so they asked me, did I want to learn how to be a videotape editor? So I said, sure, absolutely. Well, all the film guys took the buyout. They didn't want to learn a new craft. So a bunch of people were hired as videotape editors and really didn't know the craft. It was brand new. So, so it was a great job for me. And I was in my edit booth one morning and I was editing for, for the draft the nfl draft and and the broncos coach was a man named red miller and so i was editing the red miller show and in came this woman sue Tews, who was the assignment editor and she said you were the sports intern so you know something about sports i said yeah sue why she said muhammad ali's two and a half hours early at the airport can't find anybody please go out and interview him well back then there were no cell phones there were no beepers it was 7 seven thirty in the morning uh, if you didn't answer your home phone you know nobody uh, could find you. So I run out to the airport, Stapleton International, the old airport in Denver. Uh, I don't have a coat and tie. I went into the weatherman's office and he was just a little bitty guy. His name was Stormy Rotman. I couldn't fit in that. He was about five foot three. And so anyway, I showed up and there was Ali. And as I sat down and asked the first question, he said, you're the one doing the interview? Well, the whole entourage <laughs> laughed, but that put me at ease. They weren't laughing at me. They were laughing 
you know, just at the circumstance and, you know, I wasn't even shaving yet. And, uh, and, and, and that just kind of put me at ease. It took all the edge off because Ali was having fun. He, he wasn't poking fun at me. He was, he, he just, you know, it was just funny. And I said, yeah, I'm doing it. And, and then the third question or fourth question, the response was, you sound like the local Howard Cosell. Wow. Let me tell you something, John. I had never had such a great compliment in my life. I grew up watching Howard Cosell. I loved the Ali and Cosell tandem I, and, and what, that, what that was. And I was mesmerized by them. And so that just, that just you know, filled me with, with such joy and such confidence. And, and, and it really has ever since. You know, that just gave me you know, so much inner um, uh, it, 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 you know, joy, really. And, and, and so I came back. He gave me 45 minutes, Ali. I was editing myself out, and the news director, the man who ran the bureau, uh, Roger Ogden, walked in. And Roger knew me, but he didn't really know me much, hadn't spent any time with me. Uh, great man. Uh, looked at it for 45 minutes. He said, play that again. So I played it again. Well, I was editing myself out. They weren't going to put me on TV. And he looked at it after the second time, and he was mesmerized by Ali. And he said, you and this videotape are going on the air. It's barely adequate. So I tell everybody, John, I've been barely adequate ever since. <laughs> hey, that's that's a good start. Barely adequate. I like it. I like it. Um, what a, what a, what a statement, though, uh, Cosell. I've always found that relationship uh, one of the most fascinating between a, a, a news figure and, an, and a new sub, you know, a, a reporter and a and, and a news subject, uh, Ali and Cosell. Um, you know, I mean, we never would have known. Muhammad Ali in the way we knew him. He would have been a great athlete and he would have had his social stands and he would have changed the world. But we wouldn't have come to know him in the fashion that we got to know him or in the intimate way that we became familiar with him had it not been for Howard Cosell. They brought out the best in each other. You know, Muhammad was a brilliant mind, obviously, and, and, and he was going to blaze that trail regardless of who was talking to him. But, but Howard, you know, Howard was really unique and special and, and outright great, really. And, uh, and, and because of Howard, you know, we have, we have, we've gained so much more about the life of Muhammad Ali. I think that's a fascinating insight, Jim. And, and to pick up on that theme, I, you know, we're coming off an election that, uh, actually featured quite a few prominent sports figures, LeBron, James, uh, Steph Curry, among those who were pretty outspoken. Uh, we saw President Trump kind of using the uh, reflected glory of the, uh, Bobby Knight, Lou Holtz, and friendships with Tom Brady, Brett Favre th throughout. I'm curious your, your take on this because Muhammad Ali was a very political person. So was Jackie Robinson, Bill Russell, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, it, I feel like there's a perception that you know athletes have become more political, more more willing to engage in politics recently. But to my mind, at least, there's a there's a long through line. What have you seen over decades of talking to people like this about how they view how they view their voice in the context of broader American society? Well, their voice is just amplified, and and that's the internet and social media. So you know when Muhammad Ali did what he did, you know there was three television networks. And, and if you go back and you read David Brinkley's book, uh, he says, the news is what I make it. That's a powerful statement. So he had 22 minutes to inform 
the country, what he thought was most important in the world. So now, you know, everybody has a cell phone, everybody has a camera. And so you're, you're, you're constantly available and you're constantly being recorded. And so everything is amplified and everything is taken to a, another level. So I can't imagine what things would have been like uh, back in Ali's day. Just think about Jesse Owens running in, in, in Berlin and the statement that that made, okay, uh, to, to stand up against uh, Aryan white supremacy uh, and to beat Hitler in his own backyard. So, and, 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 and Marty Glickman uh, not being permitted to run in Germany, a great broadcaster, uh, and terrific, uh, terrific man because he was Jewish. So, you know, you, you look back over the course of time and back then it was, you know, radio and radio became television and television became cable television and cable television became satellite television. And, you know, then we could see everything everywhere around the world in a, in a, in a heartbeat at a moment's notice. And then Al Gore decided to invent the internet. Um, and I'm sorry, Mr. Gore, that was just a, a pathetic, easy line. But anyway, <laughs> then the internet was then the internet then the internet was was invented, and um and 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 you know in it in its infancy you've got mail, and so that that kind of changed the way everybody started to communicate, and 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 we go all the way up here now to Facebook and Twitter and uh, all of these uh, social media avenues uh, that, that convey a message in a heartbeat. And, and, and if you look at it, you see where the power lies and you see that, I mean, look at it. Twitter took down Tunisia and caused the Arab spring in, in, in Egypt. Uh, and, 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 and it's just so, so powerful. And, and what athletes have found is that their voices can be heard without having to go through, you know, ABC news or CBS news or, uh, NBC or CNN or Fox News or whoever. And uh, ESPN, in my instance, you know, for a long time, sports figures across the country communicated with each other through the power of ESPN. Well, they don't have to now. They can go to YouTube or, or they can go to WhatsApp. Whatever it is that they have, it's right at their fingertip. So that's the biggest change. So I don't necessarily know that that athletes are more political. I just think that it's it's highlighted more and, and their thoughts and feelings are so much more readily available that uh, you think it's all the time. It may have been all the time before, but it didn't get in front of us. John mentioned the interviews you've done with, with U.S. presidents, and we've had a, a series of presidents who are very closely associated with sports. George W. Bush, of course, an owner of the Texas Rangers, Barack Obama, uh, uh, an avid fan of basketball, filling out brackets in in the White House itself uh, during March Madness. Uh, up there, Donald Trump, you know, the, who, who associates himself with these golf clubs and likes to brag about his golf game. You got a funny story about uh, about him grasping for superlatives in an interview with you uh, shortly before uh, he became president. But I'm curious your take on how presidents have viewed sports in your estimation when you're interviewing them. They they don't view sports as merely a diversion. It strikes me that you've got a, a series of presidents. You probably go back to Teddy Roosevelt on this, who see the power of sports uh, as something broader. And uh, I'm just curious your your interactions with presidents, how you see them reacting, relating to sports. Well, I think that you know I I've gone back and been fortunate enough to interview the last nine, going all the way back to Richard Nixon. And so I. Uh, 
I, I think that they, I think that all of them really, uh, to the best of my knowledge, had a love for sports. Uh, some more so than others, and some, you know, all of them in, in different areas. Um, Jimmy Carter used to love to go to, to baseball games, okay? And he was a big Braves fan. And so, you know, that, 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 that brought him a lot of joy. George W. Bush uh, got to do the uh, 30 for 30 first pitch with him, the documentary uh, about when he threw out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium uh, after a few short weeks of, of the tragedy of 9-11. Uh, you know, he was a managing general partner of the Texas Rangers. So uh, he loved baseball. Barack Obama played basketball as much as he could when it wasn't interfering with what he had to do uh, in the Oval Office. He, he would he would go over and have a regular basketball game. Also loved golf. They all mostly have had a love for golf. President Ford. Uh, I got to play numerous rounds with President Ford. And a funny story. Uh, it's in the book. It's in Talking to Goats. Uh, when President Ford turned 90, he asked me, could I come play golf with him? So I, I went and played and I asked him what, what he had gotten for his birthday. And Betty said, and he said that Betty had given her <laughs> chipping and putting lessons. And I started to laugh. And he said, why are you laughing? I said, you really think at this point it's going to help? <laughs> she thinks it's going to help. And, and he said, it's never too late to improve. So um, uh, he loved golf. Bill Clinton, uh, a lover of golf. President Trump, obviously, with all the golf courses and the 200 plus times that he's played uh, during during his administration. You know, that's his exercise. Um, Ronald Reagan uh, was a sportscaster when he started. Uh, that was his first job. OK, so uh, you can trace back at least the ones that I have uh, been uh, in the company of. Uh, and George H. W. Bush uh, loved golf with baseball player at Yale. Uh, and, and he wanted to speed up the game of golf and, uh, you know, the, the Bush family, the W stands for Walker, George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, Walker created the Walker cup, which is one of the stables, one of the great golfing events, uh, that goes back and has a tremendous history of the Walker cup. So, uh, when you look at, 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 at the folks who've occupied that office, uh, at least in my time, and you can even go back further. Uh, all of these guys threw out the first pitch, uh, you know, Calvin Coolidge, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Eisenhower had a tree that came down at Augusta National. It was a big golfer. Um, uh, all of them have thrown out the first pitch at some point. I don't think President Trump has, uh, but uh, I, see where, I see where President-elect Biden has been invited to uh, throw out the first pitch for, for the Nationals uh, this spring. So, uh, but President Trump did attend one of the uh, World Series games. So I think they all have had, uh, to some degree or another, uh, a love for sports. I did an interview with President Obama on the USS Carl Vinnison, uh, the boat, uh, the ship that buried uh, Osama bin Laden. And uh, Michigan State played North Carolina on 11-11-11. And uh, that just happened, so happens to be my birthday, Veterans Day. And so uh, we did an interview at halftime, and he talked about the importance of sports, that he could only find really uh, uh, two walks of life where everybody came together for a unified purpose. And that was in the military where you had blacks, whites, men, women, uh, Hispanics, Asians, everybody pulling for the exact same thing. And that's to be together and to uh, solve the mission. And he said, the only other place that really occurs is in sports. So maybe we could look at sports in the military to somehow bring this divided country uh, together that maybe we could find examples 
uh, in that. And it's true. You look in every locker room uh, across the land, football, baseball, basketball. I mean, it's, it, 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 it is a collection uh, of everything that we are here in America. Uh, uh, everybody who's come to this country or who was born in this country. And so uh, he, he thought that it could be a good example of, of how to bring us together. So, yes, I think they've all loved sports. Well, Jim Gray, happy birthday, first of all. We'll get that on the record. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we didn't know we were doing a birthday podcast here. That's fantastic. Um, look, you, you, when you interview these, these sports figures, you're, you're interviewing people that, that uh, you know, are, are used to being lionized. These are heroes. These are, these are people that are you know, you know, used to having people rush over and try to get their autographs, unlike the politicians that we, that we spend a lot of our time uh, interviewing. Uh, but you've never been afraid to ask uh, tough questions of anybody, whether it be, um, you know, one of the political figures you're talking about or, or you know, the, 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 these sports greats, these legends. Um, and you've, you've occasionally rubbed people the wrong way. You're not afraid to do that. I've, I've, Lord knows I've done more, more than my share of that with the people that I've interviewed and asked questions of. Uh, what, what, what's your approach when you're going in and you're, you're interviewing somebody that is seen as, you know, just, just short of being a god by so many people, these, these as you say, these goats? Um, how do you calibrate um, the interview is something to kind of like, I mean, are, are, you, are you celebrating these people? Are you asking them tough questions? How do you, how do you figure out your approach when you're, when you're interviewing one of these people? I just think I let the natural curiosity of what's occurred in front of me. So if you've just played a game, you have to be able to react to what's gone on or what has, has gone on that has led you to this point, <clears throat> whether it's in the pregame or at the halftime or the postgame or a sit-down feature. So I've always thought it, thought about it like this. I just am naturally curious as to you know what it is that is you've accomplished or or, or what's going on uh, that would be pertinent. And so I think you know you owe it to yourself to ask the questions. I think you owe it to the people that you work with, your colleagues. You owe it to the people who you work for, and you owe it to the audience. So you you can't. You can't go into this and say, I'm not going to do this because this guy may be offended. You know, I did a roundtable with Mike Tyson and John, I had never thought of this. And it just came to my head uh, uh, at the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And, and Mike came up there and was nice enough to introduce me and do the induction. And uh, somebody asked us uh, at a roundtable, you know, was I ever afraid of Mike? And, and did I ever feel like I might offend him and, and that he would take it wrong? And when I said that to him, and when that question was uh, when that when when that was said to us, and I answered that question, this popped into my head. Mike Tyson has just been hit in the head a hundred times by Evander Holyfield. Tom Brady has just been sacked three times by Michael Strahan. LeBron James has had his foot crushed and stepped on eighteen times in this game. They faced that opponent. You really think that anything that I can ask them about their performance or about what's going on is offensive after a guy's been hit in the head a hundred times or hit another guy in the head a hundred times? I don't think so. Uh, and if they're offended by what I did, how could they have ever competed what they just did? They could have never gotten to the point of getting on the field if words were going to hurt them. And that doesn't mean that words should hurt them. I'm never mean. I'm never malicious. I just try and get to the point of what's going on in front of us. So, yeah, words can hurt and you have to pick them carefully. But really, I don't think there's anything. Tom Brady's been dragged down and hit 
for 60 minutes on a football field. Why did you throw an interception is somehow going to hurt his feeling? <laughs> so I, I, I hear me out on this because I am prepared to defend Jim Gray to Jim Gray on this point. So the, one of the, one of the, the lasting moments of your career for better or for worse, 1999 world series, Pete Rose is honored as part of that all century team. Uh, and you're on the field asking him the question, the question that of course everyone has always wanted to know. For the record, he lied to you. Um, and uh, infamously, a few minutes later, you talked to Chad Curtis on the field and he refused to answer your questions and you apologized at the time. But I will maintain, Jim Gray, that what you asked were appropriate questions that a lot of sports fans wanted to know honest answers to at the time. So I know you apologize, but are you really sorry? Or what, what, do you, what did you apologize for in pressing that issue at that time? Well, I apologized for, I didn't apologize to Pete, and we never apologized for the content of the questions. And, and, and when you go back and you, and you revisit this, it was the first time that, that, that Pete had been allowed on the field in 10 years because he had signed away his own banishment for gambling on baseball, even though he never admitted it publicly. Okay. Um, so he was back out there for the first time. You know, where, where, where I could have done better is... This was a melancholy, wonderful moment of the all-century team for baseball. There was Ted Williams coming out there. There was a beautiful ovation for Hank Aaron. Here was Frank Robinson hugging Sandy Colfax. There was Stan Musial. Here were all of these people who you just had a warmth in your heart for. And Vin Scully was magical in, 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 in making the introductions. And on television, you were hearing the cymbals and the triumph of the, uh, of the trumpets and you know, it was it was highly symbolic and it, it brought a melancholy feeling. Well, I'm standing in the Yankees dugout, okay? And this this ceremony is taking place in shallow center field, just beyond second base. It fell flat. It fell flat in Centennial Olympic Park, which was Turner Field. Um, it just it just didn't have it just didn't resonate. The only thing that resonated was the ovation for Aaron and for Rose, which were astounding they were and resounding as well so i wasn't watching television well that's a that's a mistake for somebody who's on television and who had been on television for a long time i was looking at it with my naked eye my naked eye helps during the game because the camera doesn't capture things so they don't always hear everything in this instance my naked eye was a long distance away okay i should have been looking at the monitor so the feeling that everybody was having at home then changed dramatically when i came on television and started talking to Pete about all of his gambling. Now, Pete took it down a path where he continued to lie and continued to deceive. And, and so, you know, it's, it, it became, you know, a contentious interview. But the people at home just had this wonderful feeling about baseball. And then all of a sudden, there was a, a drastic change in tone. So that's what I apologized for. Perhaps this was too long or at the wrong time. But the questioning was not wrong. I, I obviously wasn't the target audience as a Yankees fan and a journalist both. But I, <laughs> I, 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 I'll say this: I, I defended you at the time, and I, I still think that it was an appropriate line of questioning. No, it's it's tough. I do too, and I thank you. I thank you. And guess what? After twenty-one years and all the agita and all the tumult and 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 all the wreckage left in the wake, and 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 what I went through and what Pete went through after twenty-one years, we sat down. And I interviewed Pete for about an hour. And we're going to have that interview on Fox News 
uh, on Sunday, November 15th. We're going to do a one-hour special on talking to goats, and he's part of the special. I love it. Oh, that sounds fantastic. That, 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 that is great. All right, uh, uh, Jim Gray, I, I, I really appreciate your time. Uh, you're, you're, you're a friend. You're a great journalist. And the book, Talking to Goats, uh, the moments you remember and the stories you never heard, I recommend to everybody. Before you go, I do want to put you on the spot one last time here on Powerhouse Politics. Because <laughs> I know you're good at thinking on your feet because that's what you've had to do throughout your entire career since they called you out there to, <laughs> to, to interview Muhammad Ali. So right now, if you were there uh, on the sidelines and you had a chance to interview at this moment Donald Trump after this election, uh, what is your first question to Donald Trump at this moment? Uh, a sports question, John? No, no. Uh, you got, you, the world is, you, you ask anything. It could be a sports question. A Jim Gray a Jim, question. What, what does Jim Gray ask right now? Okay. So I would, I, would, I would ask him, what is it that you are doing for the people, by the people, of the people, and with the people? There you go. All right. I like it. Jim Gray, thank you for joining us in Powerhouse Politics. We'll write it down. What, what, would, what would you ask? Oh, man. I, 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 I like the way you started that. What, what are you doing? I think that's a great question. Just like that. What are you doing? What do you hope to accomplish? Um, I, think that's, I think that's essentially all other questions come out of that. So I, I'm... I've, well, I think, I think that where we're at right now, it, it, it's about the people. Yep. And we've had however many million vote. Uh, 70 plus million for Donald Trump and 74 or 75 million for, for vice president and president elect Biden. So I think that now the people, the people are the ones who need help. Okay. So the people are out here with coronavirus. The people are out here with unemployment. The people are out here who need economic relief. The people are out here uh, wondering who's going to lead us and where are we going to be led and how can that be done? So let's, let's think about the people because that's what we all are. And that's what should be the focus. Public service, public service is about the people. So that's why I would ask that question. Here, here. Endorse. Thank you, Jim Gray. Good luck with the book. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much, John. Great to be with you guys. Thank you so much, for both of you, for having me on. Thank you. Thank you. All right, that is all the time we have for this special edition of Powerhouse Politics with Jim Gray. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Avery Miller for uh, prepping this interview. Thank you to uh, Trevor Hastings, uh, Rick Klein, the entire Powerhouse Politics team. See you again soon.